All right. Well, does anyone want to guess where we're going to go? Did you get my notes again? I don't know about her. I think she's got a GPS on me or something. We are going to turn to Ephesians, and we're going to turn to chapter 4. Uh, we read chapter 3 as a preface. Um, as you're turning to Ephesians chapter 4, it, it's almost like we're doing things a little bit in reverse. Um, and those of you that know me, that's actually fairly easy. <laughs> but let's, let's go back and rehearse where we kind of came from, maybe not all the way back. That would be about 21 years ago. We understand that wouldn't be appropriate. But let's maybe one that seemed to be very, I'm going to say, rewarding and fulfilling and enlightening for us. It was a rather extensive study, and it's time that it was for times such as this. And that would be putting on, I'm kind of leading the witness now, but putting on the, thank you for the whole armor of God. And we spent quite a bit of time there, and we found that actually in Ephesians chapter 6, beginning at verse 10 through 18. And for me, it was really good. I mean, it was good. It was kind of like, and it's amazing how the scripture, you can be reminded and continually go over it. And it's like, we said that that's okay. You just continue to rehearse and to rephrase, bring it all back together. And it was really good for us, I think, to re- reassess, reanalyze, seeing how important it is that we put it all on. And so we took quite a long time doing that. Then where did we go next? Trials. We went to James, didn't we? James chapter 1. And we saw that actually during trials is probably the most critical time for us to have on the whole armor of God. And if we don't put on the whole armor of God, literally then the next week we talked about the next week we talked about temptation. Thank you. Thank you. Because I was going to get really old if I kept saying that. And we found out the difference between trials and temptations is literally what? It's the same word in the Greek, actually, um, trials and temptations. But it's very different in the sense of how it's played out. Trials are for our good. They literally are. Every single trial that you've ever had in your life, we know that God is behind it. He has allowed it. And he has... Oh, this is good. Trials lead to... Oh, my goodness, we forgot it. (laughs) Trials go to endurance. Of course it does. And endurance goes to maturity. See, it's so good. But you have to have the antics up here, right? Okay. And But now the difference is, what's a temptation versus a trial? And when we take a trial and we would internalize it and allowing it to be... uh, a lure or a attachment towards evil to sin, it becomes a temptation. And oftentimes with a trial, we make a choice. God uses trials to build us, to mold us, to make us everything that we could possibly be for his glory. And look at Job for a moment. There's a man that took trials and didn't turn them into temptations. Even think of his wife at the very end. She said, curse God and die would have been a very obvious temptation to finally just say, that's enough of you, God. But he didn't. A bitterness is one that we talked about in regards to temptation. It's so easy to bring bitterness on board and allow Satan to have a beachhead to be able to attack us continually in that area. So that was last week. So what were we going to do this week? But it's almost like we're backtracking. You know, you got to have your armor on before you have a trial. 
And if you're not careful with the trial, it's easy to allow a temptation through your own lust. By the way, does God tempt you? No, he does not. He can't do it. He's not touched by evil. He's not touched by sin. He has, he's so detached you couldn't possibly even imagine that he could... He can't, he can't even comprehend it, quite honestly. I'm, so that, that's hard. I don't know if I'm even saying that correctly, but he's so removed from sin, he can't have any part of it whatsoever. And to maybe the clearest fun- function of that that I know of is to know that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, all God, all man, hanging on a cross, bearing our sins, God could not look on himself, if you will, for three hours as that penalty was finally meted out and Jesus said it is finished think of that for three hours to have the, the second person of the Trinity to be removed from God the Father I, I, I don't have words for that because there aren't any but my point is this God is in no way shape or form ever or will he ever tempt you he brings a trial for your good Satan will try to use that trial to internalize it to allow you or to make you for a lust for evil. Now, so my, so then the next phase, I, I was, it, this didn't come exactly early this week either. I had a lot of different ways. I was, I was just thinking, is this it, God? Is this it, God? Is this it, God? And at 12.09 this afternoon, finally, and the only reason I noticed was it was on my, on my phone, it seemed to be, and I'm hoping, I'm, and by the way, we haven't prayed, have we? We need to do that because we want to, did we even read our lesson? We didn't even do that. I'm going to stop for a moment. Let's read Ephesians chapter 4, then we'll pray. That's what we need to do. Ephesians chapter 4, we'll read the first six verses. I therefore, Paul speaking, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as you are called in one hope, of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. May God add a special blessing to the reading of his word, and let's just open in prayer. Father God, we're here today because we love you. We're here today because you love us. Father, for these moments now before us, we would ask that you would show us exactly where you want us to be. We're going to ask for the Word of God to become part of us, that the Holy Spirit that lives within us would be able to use it to encourage and coach us and allow us to be just a little bit more like Jesus Christ at the, at the end of this time together with you. We would ask that the Holy Spirit would exclusively be our teacher. We're not capable, Father, without the Spirit leading us in the Word. And Father, we do reach out to you thanking you again for even giving us the opportunity to have your word, to have truth, that we are not left alone without it. Now again, we raise up your name in thanksgiving, praise, and honor, seeking the Spirit to guide us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. And I think it's interesting, uh, this was some notes from last week uh, in regards to temptation and how it would go. It starts with a desire and it hits your emotions. Um, Satan's pretty good at that. Our whole society is set up to attract and to call you through your emotions. Whether it's, uh, I, I think of, uh, I don't know why, but cars or 
a vehicle uh, on television or even if you go to a, and I, I actually really don't like buying a vehicle. I just don't like doing it. It's so, and everybody's shaking, yeah, right, we're all together on that. But it's amazing how they, 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 they want to attract you to the vehicle literally through emotion. They really do. They, they want to grab you there, and then after the emotional attachment, literally then it's in your mind. What are you going to do with that? As we saw, deception, quite honestly. We looked at Eve and Adam, and we looked at how Eve was very much emotionally attached to what Satan had laid out. And then her mind was deceived. And in fact, it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, she was beguiled. Satan is very crafty. That's another word that we find even, even in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 or 11 right there. His, his wild, the wiles of Satan or the craftiness. He's, he's a rascal. And I have a line drawn between two and three because literally right here, if, if you're able, that temptation can be stopped. Uh, it's, very, it's very close. You don't want to get to this point. Just leave it as a trial, right? Just leave it as a trial. Let the temptation go whoosh right by you. But in the event that your emotions are, tra- are captured and then your mind starts to play with it, that's when you're, you're in dangerous, dangerous territory. That's like being on the edge of a cliff and just, yeah, I wonder how far I can really, no, I don't, I'm okay. I'm okay. That is really how it is with temptation and falling into sin. That word falling is very true, isn't it? You're on the edge of the cliff and you just, why don't you move away from it? Because we're attached to it. But once it gets to our will, now we've designed a plan to make it happen. It hasn't happened, but we've, we've, we are designing within our own will. We have decided that is what we're going to do. That is too late. And we went, our text last week was 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. If you're at this stage, you missed God's exit. That was a word we used last week. And then actually then the disobedience, the behavior itself carries itself out. I went back to Ephesians chapter 4 because there's a part of all of this that, again, we're backtracking. For the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul has been very open in telling us what we have in Christ, who we are in Christ. I mean, you have blessings that you can't even imagine. You don't even know about all of them. It says in verse 3 of chapter 1, the heavenly blessings. There's things that are beyond your wildest imaginations that are yours. I mean, they're on your side of the assets in your, in your, in your balance sheet, your spiritual balance sheet. I don't know if you think of that. Uh, any of you guys that think financially, uh, in, uh, your spiritual balance sheet after Jesus Christ, when you accepted him, you accepted God's grace by faith. Guess what? The liabilities are wiped clean. You don't, it's, it's, not, it's not minimizing sin. You, you are dead to sin is the word that's used. It no longer has any power over you. Cancel the penalties. Now, how we live, there's choices. See, with right here, these are choices that we have. But, but am, I, am I making any sense? You're, you have so many riches in chapter 3 that which you read today. It's beyond your wildest imagination. You can't even think. You can't comprehend the level of the blessings that God has given you. Because of what Jesus did. And now the Old Testament versus the New Testament is very, very different. You'll find in the Old Testament, if you keep my commandments, then this this is what I'm going to give you. The New Testament, when Jesus Christ died for our sins, it's very different. Since he's given you this in his grace through his mercy, won't you please live like this? (laughs) Think of that. I, I don't want to be an Old Testament person. 
I really don't. I didn't. I, I, sacrifice to me is just not my deal. And I would have to have a lot of them. I'd have to have a lot of them, right? And it's amazing how prevalent sin is. It's so easy to get into it. But I'm thinking, to, to get to the level of where we're putting on the whole, the whole armor of God, we're able to utilize trials to our good for God to use in the sense of endurance to move us to more maturity and to avoid temptations. I'm thinking, what is our mindset? How, do we, how is it that we do that right? How do we do it godly? How do we do it in the right manner so that we avoid this temptation turning into a design of the will to accomplish it? The answer is in chapter 4 of Ephesians because Paul was always so good in his epistles. He would literally lay out how to think right. He's a doctrine guy. Before there's duty, there's always doctrine. That's just the way he did it because if you can't think right, you can't live right. And it's interesting as he's laid out in Ephesians chapters 1 through 3, the blessings and the magnificent possessions that you have in Christ... He starts right off in chapter 4 with that verse, verses 1 and 2. We're not going to get very far today. That he is, did you know that Paul was a beggar? A beggar? Did you know that? You're thinking about it in the wrong manner, aren't you? But he was right here when, he, when you, hear the, you see the word beseech. I beg of you to walk worthy. There's all kinds, we'll get into them later, but he's, he beseeches or he's begging people to live for Christ all through the New Testament, he is a beggar. He begged Agrippa. Right? I beseech you that you would really, literally see Jesus Christ. He's begging for all the right reasons. But how do we, so we're going to, the term that we're going to walk with through today is, or that was no pun intended, is to walk worthy. To walk worthy. Now he's saying that because of what you have in Christ. To walk worthy. How do we walk worthy? And this is literally, these, there's going to be five characteristics of which the end result, I'll speak of that for a moment. There is an end, there's an end thought process that God really wants. Not only for us to be Christ-like, but if everyone looked like Christ in the sense of everything that Christ was, you know what we would have? We would have a world that would be very unified, very peace-fulfilled, and very loving. Uh, that's not so much in our world today because society's not built that way. It's really not. The enemy of all of that literally is the same as the very first sin that was ever committed to the sins that are being committed today. Every single sin is completely contained within pride. Pride, pride, pride. But I don't, that's where I was starting was a sense of the challenges and the troubles with pride, but let's do it from a positive way, right? If I tell you, don't be prideful. Oh, that's great. But let's work it from God's side and the way Paul would have done it. He's going to give us four very strong things that the world would hate. In fact, do you know that the Romans and the Greeks didn't even have a word for humility? There was no word for it. The Christians actually came up with the word humility. And that was even done with a sense of distaste from the Romans and Greeks. Well, today, what if you say, what, why don't you just try going downtown, share it, and pop into the store? Uh, hi, excuse me, I'm Larry. How are you today? Great. Would you like to learn how to be humble today? Oh, that's a big seller, right? Why is that? Because it's counterintuitive what society breeds and sells, and that is self-exaltation. It's the opposite of that. Remember the disciples even? They were really good at this. They were kind of always bickering about who was the best. 
Who's going to be the best? Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God? And it's amazing, isn't it, who, how we get to that level as we compare amongst ourselves. And make sure whoever you're comparing to isn't quite in your estimation, quite as, quote, good, unquote. Amazing, isn't it? So I would like to, uh, let's get into some of the things that Paul was so adamant about. He's begging us to do in regards to get some right action, to get duty, to get practicality to the position that we have. Uh, But before we do that, I want to show you the strength that the world and society has over us. Now, you may belong to different clubs, you may have a membership in certain type of groups, whatever it might be. And part of that is, is when you are attached to a group, um, you have almost within you a set of standards or policies or whatever that you adhere to to remain to be part of that group. Correct? I mean, that's, you know, I mean, they, they have the elks and the moose and the goats. And, well, they don't have goats, do they? But at any rate, whatever that is, each, each group that you belong to or could belong to there are certain policies and standards of which you adhere to. Society has the same thing. Uh, We may call some of that that word peer pressure. I want to show you something that is really over the top. It's quite honestly, are you kidding me kind of stuff? The pressure that's put on, in fact, I think today of many cults uh, that uh, in the name of religion that put so much pressure on people that they can't even move away from it because of the threat of excommunication. And I could name them, but there's, it's, you can name them yourself. That pressure, I want to show you something, though, from the Scripture that is amazing, the power and that, that that suggestion has. Let's go to John chapter 9. John chapter 9 for a moment. And let's watch this develop. Uh, this is truly a miracle. John chapter 9. And it might be good for us. Let's just... Let's just read it, okay? Uh, John chapter 9, verse 1. I mean, we could go to verse 22, but let's just read it. Let's watch this thing develop. As Jesus passed by, chapter 9 of John, verse 1, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. His disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Again, that would be a human reaction, isn't it? It really, truly is. Um, Oh, something's wrong there. He must have sinned. But in this case, where he was born blind from birth, that's kind of an interesting question, is it? Was it his parents because they sinned? Or was it, how could it be him if he was, you see what I'm saying? So they're really wrestling with that. Now watch what Jesus says. He says, oh, neither, neither this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be manifest in him. I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work for as long as I am in the world. I am the light of the world. What he's saying is literally that that person was really designed for this moment right now, right now, to show Jesus Christ to be the Messiah. One of those signs and wonders. One of those miracles. Uh, How else would you have a miraculous, in this case, I'm going to just say a healing or a sight giving, if you weren't blind? And I'm not going to get into the, in the majestic decisions that were made for God to allow that to happen. I don't need to, but here, let's watch it continue. I'm sure they were mystified by that. Verse 6, when he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground, made clay of the spittle. He anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay, and he said unto him, Go wash in the pool of Shalom, which is by interpretation sent. How appropriate. 
He went his way, therefore, and washed and came seeing. Now, what if this particular man, I, and I want, I'm asking this, this is not where I was intending to go in any way, shape, or form, but isn't it interesting that, there, that obedience comes before deliverance? Obedience comes before blessing. Now, what if this man, who was born blind, and Jesus reaches down, and he spits on the ground, and he makes a little clay, and of course, he can't see this, and he puts it on his eyes, and he says, go to the pool of Shalom. Now, number one, I'm thinking someone had to go with him. Correct? Makes sense. He's say- and what do you think the blind man's thinking? Oh, for heaven's sakes, Right? By the, by the way, do you think this would have been the first time that someone probably would have said he could have regained his sight if he would have done something? I doubt it. I'm sure there would have been some remedy, something that somebody would have said. But he did what Jesus said. Do we do what Jesus says? That's a great question for us internally. Let's keep going. So he does, by the way. Verse 7. I'm sorry, verse 8. The neighbors, therefore, and they which before had... I'm sorry. Let me, let me go back to read. I want to read verse 7 again. And said unto him, Go wash in the pool of Shalom, which is by interpretation said. He went his way, therefore, and washed and came seeing. The neighbors, therefore, and they which before had seen him that was blind, said, Is not this he that sat and begged? Some said, This is he. Others said, He is like him. But he said, I am he. Therefore said they unto him, How were your eyes opened? He answered and said, A man that is caught... Don't you love this? I mean, this is just like, what? You guys were there, right? A man named Jesus made clay, anointed my eyes, and said, Go on to go to the pool of Shalom and wash. And I went and washed and received my sight. Then said they unto him, Where is he? He said, I don't know. He brought to the Pharisees him that aforetime was blind. It was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the clay. Oh, that's not right. That's not right. There's some days you can't heal. That would be one of them. And opened his eyes. Then again, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He said unto them, He put clay on my eyes, I washed and do see. You see how he's shorting the story down? No, it's just so obvious. Let's just get through it. Therefore said some of the Pharisees, This man is not of God because he keepeth not the Sabbath day. (laughs) I want to make sure you understand that. Bill, you're blind from birth. And all of a sudden, here comes this Jesus guy. And he sees you from a distance and he says, he puts some clay out and he says, Bill, just go wash in the pool of Shalom and you'll see. And he comes back and he sees. That, my friends, is a miracle. I can't think of anything different to call it. Uh, He can't be of God because that was the wrong day to do that. Oh, there's an idea. Now, Bill probably doesn't care that it's not a sun, that it's a Sabbath, right? Let's keep going. Others said, how can a man that is a sinner do such miracles? That's a pretty good question. And there was a division among them. Of course there was. And they say unto the blind man again, what sayest thou of him that he opened thine eyes? And he said, he is a prophet. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight. Now watch, this is where I want to get you. This is, what this, this is how we got you here. Until they called the parents of him that had received his sight. And they asked them, saying, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then doth he now see? Now just a second. Here come the parents on the scene. Here's Bill. I'm going to use, I'm sorry, i got to just use Bill's, Bill's name because I started Okay, mom and dad, you tell me, is this 
Your Bill, the one that was blind from birth, that now can see, is that him? Watch what they say. What, what would you say? Now, step into the parents' shoes for a moment. I can't believe it. Bill can see. Unbelievable. That's a miracle. Praise God. Hallelujah. Amen. And everything else, right? Wouldn't you say that? Not necessarily. Let's watch it. Let's watch it. His parents, verse 20, answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But by what means he now seeth, we know not. Nor who hath opened his eyes, we know not. He is of age. Ask him. He shall speak for himself. Now watch verse 22. These words spoke his parents because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed already that if any man did confess that he was Christ, that is the Messiah, he should be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, said his parents, he is of age, ask him. Now, do you see the power of society that is placed on, quote, the standards that need to be, quote, unquote, in place? That, that, that to me is amazing, right? That, that's amazing to me that they would literally almost detach themselves from their son because if they would have said, it had to be Jesus, there's no other way he could have been healed. I mean, there's others that saw it. I mean, what do we need to do here? And yet, did you, did you, they were, they, they actually literally just, I'm going to say it, threw their son to the curb and just kind of try to get back in the crowd. That is what the strength of society really can do. I see it today as we've never seen it before. It's amazing. The power that the, the group mentality is. How much pressure can be put on. So why is it? Actually, let's look at one more. Let's look at uh, John chapter 12. We won't take much, as much time. John chapter 12, verse 42. Watch this. And I'm just diving in here, but verse 42, John chapter 12. And nevertheless, among the chief rulers, this would be the religious people, also many believed on him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. Is that not a sad state of affairs? Literally. They, these are people that they looked at Jesus, they analyzed him, they, they tested the waters, they, they, they made their decision, and they said, you know what? And that word believe is they believed he was who he said he was, but they wouldn't confess him. They literally fixed their destination because of the threat of losing their position in the synagogue. I can't tell you how many people today are trapped in cults, trapped in isms, that literally because of the threat of excommunication, knowing better, they can't step away. Isn't that something? Now, here's where I'm going to get to, which is, seems almost, it, it, it's on the other side of the tracks. But So why is it so hard for us as Christians to do the five things I'm going to talk about in Ephesians chapter 4? Because this is what God is asking us to do. And are we, are we afraid to be a Christian even though we are? Those are convicting words, aren't they? They will know us 
by our actions. They will know us by our love. Even Jesus said, they will know you by your love. And Jesus, Paul in this case, is asking the Christians, those that have trusted Christ, to literally begin living in humility. In fact, that's what he's going to say. Let's go back to Ephesians now. Ephesians. Chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. As he's moving the transition from doctrine to duty, from position to practical living. Oh, by the way, just to give you an idea of how how the, the standards come into play and how we're fixed by them in everyday life. Um, if you're driving on the highway, two lane, how is it that you came up with driving? Well, maybe you don't, actually, because I think about it. But did you just kind of like think about this for a long time? You know, I think, I think really, I, would, I should be driving, I think, in the daytime, 70 miles an hour. Unless I'm on interstate, I should be driving 80. I thought about it. It actually came to me in a dream. I got a certified letter from God, and I think that's what I really need to be driving, that speed. And you'd say, you're nuts. Yeah, that's right, because you're driving that speed limit. Because why? There is a law. There is a picked level of where you need to drive to be in the, in the law. You didn't come up with it on your, on your own. I will tell you, if it was up to me, I would be faster. You know, they actually measured my left foot and my right foot. My right foot is a lot heavier. <laughs> it's a lot heavier. It's really hard. It's, it just wants to go down. It wants to go down. I was in eastern Montana too long, probably. But do you see what I'm saying? All of these things that seem so structured, why is it we as Christians have so much trouble doing what God has asked us to do? To really set ourselves up to put on the whole armor of God. To be able to re- receive trials for our betterment. And to resist it, go moving into temptations. And he's telling us what to do, how to live it, how to open it up. Why do we not do that? Those are, again, those are questions we need to ask ourselves. Because if we're a part of any club or group or whatever, it's amazing how we adhere to the principles or practices thereof, right? I mean, I've showed you. There's, a, there's, a, there's parents that literally just almost, they threw Bill to the wind. Hey, Bill, can, I don't know, he was born blind. I think he's our kid, but you better ask him. Because they didn't want to be thrown out of the synagogue. Wow. Craziness. Craziness. Let's go back to Ephesians chapter 4. I therefore, verse 1, the prisoner of the Lord beseech you, beg of you, that you would walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. Walk worthy. Walk worthy. What comes to your mind? Let's just, let's just play. Let's just, I want to hear from you guys. To walk worthy. What, what would walking worthy mean? What, what does that have? I mean, Paul, he's, he's talked about all of your blessings. He's talked about all you are in Christ and all this. And he says, I'm begging of you to walk worthy. And you say, I wonder what he means by that. What is walking worthy? What does that mean? Walking worthy. Now let's, and if you like, what would it mean not to walk worthy? If you're not walking worthy, what happens? Excuse me? You're sinning. Very, very well could be, absolutely. What do we know when we're not walking worthy? Let's work our way through that for a moment. If we're not walking worthy, what's not happening? 
as you said, our personal life is going to be struggling. We're probably not going to be in the right position to put on the whole armor of God. We're going to probably get that trial. We turn it into temptation. We sin. Okay. But how about let's talk about the big picture. Who's not glorified? God is not glorified. The church is not really literally unified, is it? Because if you have a whole lot of other people, and when the point of the matter is, when we're not walking worthy, what we're doing is detracting from everyone else in the sense of the church and what we're trying to do. And you know what? That, he speaks of latter, these latter verses in Ephesians chapter 4. There can be no unity. If you don't have any unity, you don't have any peace. And what's at the basis of all of sin, we said it earlier, is pride. Now, here's something we need to really, really understand. Pridefulness and fruitfulness are incompatible. Let me say it again. Pridefulness and fruitfulness are incompatible. If you're prideful, I will guarantee you're not fruitful. It's impossible. It is impossible because that's the way it what, what Let's describe pride for a moment. What is pride, really? What is pride? It's a sin of what? Self. Okay. What else? What did you say, Jerry? Self. Okay. You know, literally, I don't know if you thought of it this way, but pride is really competing with God. That's what Satan tried to do. You'll go to Isaiah and you'll find, I am, I will, I did, I shall, I will. And God said, no, you won't. <laughs> Just what happens? No, you won't. My way. What's that? My way. My way. Yeah, my way. The sense of self-exaltation. But literally, it's just that simple. It's a sin of competing against God. That is the worst sin. It's the most heinous known because every other sin is, attract, is not attracted. It's attached to that sin. Because what you're doing is you are competing against God. Remember what John said in the end of the first John? What did he say about idols? I'm not, I'm not going to get it right. Not abstain, flee. Let, let's go there for a moment. This is, this is parting shot. First uh, John. Way off. I don't have it in my notes, but I, I know I need to go there. First John. First John, and let's take a look quickly. Come on, come on, come on. First John, chapter 5. There we go. First John, chapter 5, verse 21. Little children, that's the one term of endearment that John used. Keep yourselves from idols, amen. Quickest way to be anything other with God is pride. Competing against God. Competing against God. When you're not walking worthy, God is not glorified. You're not fully blessed, by the way. Did you know that? If you're not walking worthy, you couldn't possibly be fully blessed. The church is not fully functioning, and the world cannot see Jesus Christ. Did you catch the last one? Is that any reason possibly why the world does not see Jesus Christ? Because we are not walking worthy personally, and the church is not showing itself to be in unity? Could very well be. He goes on to say in verse 2 of chapter 4 of Ephesians, he says, with all lowliness. That's where he wants to just start. <laughs> so you've got your recipe card out, and this is how we're going to walk worthy. Okay, let's see. Number one, you women with recipes, right? You have major ingredients, and you have that small stuff, you know, the salt and the stuff like that. <laughs> this is the biggie. This is, this is, this is if you're going to do hamburgers, this would be the hamburger. <laughs> Right. This is it. Okay, so you're writing it down. Uh, this is worthy living. This is, you know, you'd caption this. Uh, let's do that. Let's just, let's just do that. Worthy, walking worthy. Walking, what did I just tell you? I said, I said living worthy. Walking worthy. 
what, what would you say walking is? I kind of gave it, excuse me? Yeah, our life. Our, it, it's literally is, how are we living? How are you living? You're walking. To live worthy. Okay? So here we go. Here's our recipe. Number one. Okay. I'm, I'm ready now. I, I mean, it must be. What would it be? He, and, he, and Paul says, he's, by the way, he's begging us. He's begging us. He, this isn't just, oh, by the way, if you feel like it. No. He says, I'm begging you. Uh, start out with a big measure of lowliness. Yeah, it is a hot piece of high mind. And how does that go over in the world? Not very well, right? You mean we're going to start with lowliness? How is this going to work out? How could we possibly? How could the church get somewhere if we're going to just be like lowliness, right? You can almost see the what? And 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 did you see it? It wasn't just a little bit of lowliness. I want you to see that. How much was it? All. Total. The word, the Greek word is total. Completely. Lowliness. What's your impression of lowliness? Humble. Humility. Okay. All right. How many got up this morning and said, Lord, make me humble? <laughs> you know, he's good at it. He's really good at it. Is it important? Why? Why is it important? It's not about you. That's really pretty good. It's not about you. How is that going to be important in walking worthy? Thinking of others? Yeah. Not thinking about yourself? We're back to that same thing, see. Pride, when I think, when I think of pride, that, that, I don't know, that works for me because pride is, a, there's just a lot of ways we could describe it. And you can see pride in other people. It's, isn't it amazing how you can see pride in other people? It's really hard to see it in ourselves. Or is that just me? <laughs> and it's amazing the different concept, the different aspects it can take. I was around a guy, I, had, I, I served on a church board once and I, there was two types of pride on that board. And, I, and I'm not, by the way, this is really a hard message for me to give to you. Because I may be as prideful as anyone, quite honestly. Because that's just, it comes so naturally, right? And I wish I wasn't this person to do this, but it's in the scriptures and here I are. Because it's really important. There's two types of pride on that church board. One of them was just outright, you could spot it a million miles away. And this guy, he had a sort of little man's disease. Do you know what I mean by that? And it, it played every section, all through, in every meeting it was just, and you know, it was, a, and then there was another type of pride there that wasn't as quite, quite as easy to discern. Then it was an older gentleman, but what he would do is he would express his opinion, and then he would say, ah, but I don't, I don't know anything, I'm nothing really, I'm just, I'm just nothing. I, I don't know anything about it. See, that's just as prideful as the one that's just that flagrant arrogance, you know, that you, you can just see it, actually you can see it emanate. Because this, they're the same thing, because it's bringing attention to self. And even though it seems like it's self-destruction, the point of the matter is it was still brought self to light. Yeah, do you understand? That's what pride is all about. No matter how self is brought to the table, as long as the spotlight is on self, that's pride. 
And Paul is saying, no, 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 no. We don't want any of that. We want lowliness. We want humility. Humility. Now, why would, why would humility be important to start with? Why would that be the hamburger and hamburger? What would that be about? Glorifying God in everything. What would a successful Christian life look like? And I'm, I'm being, that word successful maybe isn't the worst, but uh, the best. But if, if you look at it from the outside and, and there's someone that is, is really getting Christ's work done. There is someone that is looking out for others. There is someone, it's not about them. And I can think of, you see, when I say it that way, there's, there's actually names that come into my mind. Okay. I'm not going to state them. Be, it, I don't need to. But in your mind, mind, you might have that person. You see, as we describe that person that literally is getting it done for Christ, and you're going to say for sure that is a person that is encased within humility, correct? They really, are. they really are. He or she is. But the key component is, why is it working? Why does that really look like? And this is what these things are all about, is that person looks a lot like Jesus Christ. That's what God wants us to look like. That is what he's working. That's why he's taking these trials. He's making us become just a little bit more like Christ. Not my will. But thine. That's exactly right. And Jesus, I'm telling you what, he sees, he sees some nails coming. He sees a lot of nails and a lot of cross and a lot of pain and a lot of agony. And he said, Lord, if you can take this cup from me, but your will, not mine. Wow. Humility looks a lot like Jesus. Let's go to Philippians chapter 2 for a moment. Philippians chapter 2. Let's see Jesus. Now let's talk about Jesus. How would he look to the world? Let's describe him for a moment. First of all, while you're doing that, you're thinking about that. Let's uh, let's take his balance sheet out. Okay, He's going into a bank. He's going to get a loan. So he goes up to the loan officer. I can't pick on Paul because he's not here. But here comes this guy named Jesus. And he's been sitting in the waiting room for a period of time. And you wave him in. The secretary says, uh, I was going to say Mr. Christ, but Mr. Jesus wants to come and see you. Okay, very good. So he sits across the desk from the lender. And, and Mr. Lender says, uh, Jesus, what is it that you're here for today? You see, this whole it's absurd, isn't it? The whole thing is absurd. But if he had a balance sheet, he would put it across the table. What would be on it? Let's talk about what he had for assets. Didn't have a house. Didn't, obviously didn't have a car, but he didn't have... He didn't have anything. Well, excuse me? He didn't have nothing. What's that? Yeah. In that relationship, he had everything. Yeah, right. But from the world standpoint, he would have he would have been called a failure, a loser, a lost cause, and a, a complete right. He he couldn't even take on his father's business after Joseph. Right? What did he do then? He's going to walk around and organize people. Right? Can you imagine what he looked like from the outside, from the world system? He was worthless. That's why he would have been seen as as being. That's why the Pharisees hated him so much. He was so different from everything that they believed was good. That's why they hated him. 
Now, if he would have come on the scenes and tried to be the chief priest, if he would have tried to take out the Roman governor, if he would have been that one to lead that insurrection of the rebellion and literally taken out all of the Roman influence and he would have become the brand new Israel king, they would have been all over it. But he didn't. He came at him with humility. Take a look at this in Philippians chapter 2. This is crazy. Let this mind be in you, verse 5, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, and made in the likeness of men. Being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. that's That's what Paul said we should do. Turn over to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, verse 29. 11.29. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek. That's a different term. We'll look at it next week. And lowly in heart, and you shall find rest in your souls. Huh. How about 1 John chapter 2? 1 John chapter 2, verse 6. 1 John 2, 6. This is where it gets interesting. He that saith he abideth in him, and others in Christ, ought himself also so to walk or live even as he walked. Hmm. Now it's starting to hit home. It's starting to be more personal. So just as Jesus was, which we just looked at him, we described him, we are to walk in humility. We are to walk in lowliness, if you will. Well, that's not very popular. Where does, where, where does self fit into that? That's the key. It's not there. It's not there. Let's take a few moments and look at pride for a moment. Pride. Let's go to the Proverbs. It has a lot to say. Proverbs chapter 16. Let's start there. Proverbs 16, verses 5 and 8. Proverbs 16, verse 5. Everyone that is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Ooh. Verse 8. Better is a little with righteousness than great revenues without right. I got that wrong. Where was I at? 18. I'm sorry. Verse 18. There we go. Pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 4. A high look, a proud heart, and the plowing of the wicked is sin. Pretty clear. Pretty clear. So, um, if I was to go around the room and I'd say, what year did you overcome pride? When was it you you just finally whipped it? You got it. It's over. You're done. Nailed it. What, could you, could you express that event for me, please? And you're all laughing. You don't live that long, do you? You don't live that long. (laughs) I think the only thing happens to us, the older we get, the more ways there is to express it. It was yesterday, and I'm really proud of it. <laughs> that would be exactly... Uh, thanks to the Humility Club, buddy. Yeah, right, right? Isn't it something? See, that's not something you ever get through. <laughs> there was actually... A, there was a, su- a seminary student that actually questioned a, a very seasoned uh, pastor, well up in years, and that was a question he asked. Uh, Dr. Such-and-such... How did, when, when did you overcome pride? 
And the guy, you know, the guy responded. He said, you don't. You just don't. Isn't it amazing? It has nothing to do with intellect, right? It has nothing to do with intellect. Satan should have figured it out. He didn't. And you take someone that has very, very little intellect in the sense of capabilities, and it's, it's just prevalent. It's just there, isn't it? Humility is so much on the opposite side of the page. Competing with God. Let's go to James chapter 4, verse 6. And this is literally, it, it almost is the synopsis of where our world is. How would you, as you're turning there, think of the world? Uh, what would you uh, describe the world for me? One thing is for sure. How many peace treaties have ever been written in this? I, I should have Googled it. Maybe no one would ever know, but that's a lot, isn't it? How many, of them were, how many were broken? Every single one. And if they've just made one, I'm going to go ahead and go out on, the, on a limb and say it'll be broken too. What's the common denominator of pride's fruit? The fruit of pride is, there could probably be a number of answers. The one I'm thinking for will, excuse me? Destruction. Destruction. Yeah. Let's go to James chapter 4, verse 6. Or just James chapter 4, let me find it. James chapter 4, verse 1. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lusts that war in your members? You lust and have not. You kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. You fight in war, yet you have not because you ask not. What's behind fighting in war? Self. <laughs> Show me a church fight. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's almost painful to say something like that, isn't it? I mean, that shouldn't even be something that should be able to be said out loud. A church fight? What, what, did, what did we just say in Ephesians chapter 4? What's the end result of these five characteristics? Four particularly is the unity, right? And when we have unity, we have peace. We have love. And a church fight, you know what's behind? Every single one of them is pride. Every single one. I've told you this before, some of the dumbest things at church fights are just ridiculous. We had one church I attended, we had, they had a really beautiful picture uh, kind of a mural, I guess I'd say, and it was a depiction of, of salvation. And there was this, it was this huge chasm, and there was a cross that, that you've probably seen something like it. And there was a mass amount of people, but only a few were taking the cross, crossing this chasm of, of literally which was showing destruction and hell, obviously. And it was, it was very well done. Okay? And someone, one of the earliest pastors of, of this particular church had painted that, and it was up on the wall, on the front. But rather than have it there all the time, they had a curtain that they would, you know, they could, they could cover, you know, during whatever. You know, I mean, just had that opportunity. Are you ready? The color of the curtain <laughs> was a really big deal. In fact, it caused a church split. Is that not crazy? Now, do you think there was a lot of lowliness and humility involved in that one? No. No. You see, that's why you have to start with humility, because it takes all the garbage out. It kicks it all out. Now, even this week, I was just thinking about, there, you know, you have your moments when you, you kind of have those, you kind of have those up moments, right? Uh, there was a guy that, that, I don't know how much of the story to make of it, but he came to me because he needed some water, and he had a crop, potatoes, that, you know, very vulnerable, and due to this particular year, he's out. He doesn't have any water. And he came to me and he said, can I make a deal? Can I do something? 
And now, did I have to? No, I didn't. But should I? That's a, that's a deeper question, isn't it? Because that's not the point whether I have to, because that's how the world would re- respond to that. And I think if we were switched around, it may have been different results, but I'm not here to take that position. But it's one step further, is what was it worth for that water to him? Now, the world's way would be, how much can I get for it? How much can I get from him for that water? Right? And I was ready to tell him, and it was, it's a fairly high price because literally it's what my loss would be as well. But here's a neighbor that's come to me, and he needs the water to have a crop, right? But there was another level yet, and it's under the next term. We're not going to have time to work on today, but it's called meekness. And meekness is power under control, where you have the power to do something that could actually harm someone else. Jesus was incredibly meek. He could have taken out everyone, right? But he didn't. Okay, so I'm getting off, a little bit off, I'm digressing for a moment. But you know, it wasn't just a matter that I felt good about offering the water. I had to feel comfortable in the amount of money that I was going to charge him would be something that I would be willing to pay myself. And it was the night that I was supposed to call him back, and he's, he wants to get this done. I couldn't do it. I was just something wrong. And I actually told a friend of mine, I said, I don't want to be praying about that because it just doesn't, I don't know why, but I can't, there's something not right yet. And I prayed about it that night, and the next morning I woke up, and it was like, that's the deal. What would you pay for a situation of that nature? And it was significantly less than what I could have gotten. Do you see the difference? See, there's, and again, I'm not trying, because I had, I had way more pride moments than I had good moments, shall we say. But there was one that I really think is, is the way we should react from God's perspective is a situation where we can help someone and using it on the same plane of which we're really responding in every way that it's truly the right way to respond. But isn't it amazing how quickly pride can rise up? Oh, my goodness. It can just bring it just like that. Boom! You've got to have a big measure of this. A couple gallons, maybe, huh? If you're making a quart, make a couple gallons. But let's turn to, if you're, are you still in James? Let's turn down to verse 6. He kind of ends this consequence of the wars and the worldliness, which is really its cause. He says in verse 6, but he giveth more grace. He giveth more grace. Wherefore, he saith, God resisteth the proud and giveth grace unto the humble. I, that, if there's ever a reason to be humble, I want grace. I want grace. Do you know what? Every single person that has ever come to Jesus Christ... Every single person has had to put pride aside, to bow their knee, to bow their heart, to accept the grace that God is going to give to them. When I hear someone say, I can do it myself, what do I hear? I hear pride at a loud level. I don't need Jesus. I hear pride. I can do it my way. I hear pride. There's more than one way. I hear pride. Right? If you have truly come to Jesus Christ and you've trusted him, one thing is absolutely true. Pride had to be thrown aside for you to humbly bow before Jesus Christ and say, I need you. Isn't that true? And wouldn't it make sense then for us to logically live our lives in that same position of humility because that's the best way to live. 
That's the best way for us to capture all of the blessings we have. Because you wouldn't have even gotten salvation if you hadn't humbled your heart. That's why many times people have to go through the most serious, the most heinous, the most struggling, and you end up in the bottom of the well, so to speak, and there's nowhere but just sideways or nowhere. But it's at that point, literally, then that pride can be broken enough to where they say, I submit to you, Father. I submit to you, God. I will do it your way. That's how we're saved. You cannot be saved if you cannot put pride aside. Cannot happen. Nor will you be fruitful as a Christian if pride is in your life. Can't happen. In fact, look at Jesus, what he says in uh, Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. Now, again, all of this is review, I'm sure, but it's amazing how review, how much review it takes for us to get it right. Let's see if I can find this. Here we go. Uh, chapter 18 of Matthew. We'll start in verse 1. At the same time, Matthew 18, verse 1, at the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Oh, imagine this. Imagine this. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? There's the answer. There's the question of the day. I bet you they were sitting around the campfire saying, I wonder who the greatest is. I bet Jesus would know. And they come to him and say, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? How is Jesus going to answer this one? And, you know, I can just imagine in the smugness of that little group of disciples, I'll bet it's me. (laughs) Right? Verse 2, Jesus called. He didn't even, look at this. He's going to make an example of this. He called a little child unto him and set him in the midst of them. Now, picture that for a moment. This is, a, this is a private time. They're asking this question. Jesus doesn't even answer it. He grabs a little child and he's... I can, I can just see him just sitting on Jesus' lap, right? The Son of God. <laughs> and then he says this, to make the, the situation, the analogy even stronger. He says, Verily or truly, I say unto you, except you be converted and become as little children, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now that is a mouthful, is it not? And the disciples, I'm sure their mouth hit the dirt. What? <laughs> you mean all of this stuff and the diplomas and the statues and the idols and this? Oh, I mean, I didn't mean to say idols. I mean, out of all of that stuff that I was recognized as being the greatest, those don't matter? You're right. They don't matter. They don't matter. Only thing that matters, do you have Jesus? Do you have Jesus? Luke chapter 18. Let's go there for a moment. Luke chapter 18. Luke 18. Verse 13. Now we're going to cut right through it. Obviously, I'd I'd invite you to to read the chapter from verse 1 through. But verse, verse 13 says, this is speaking of the... Pharisee, well, let's just, verse 10, let's start there. Verse 10, chapter 18, two men went up into the temple to pray. Okay, the one a Pharisee, the other a publican. Now, if you would have said that right then, when Jesus said that already, what had happened? What had happened to the person that's listening, if you were in Israel at that time? You got a Pharisee, you have a publican. What, what's, what just happened in your mind right now? There's a difference in elevation, isn't there? The Pharisee is like, whoa, way up there, right? He's like, whoo, he's way up there. And the publican, ooh, he's a loser, Right? That would be like Matthew even described himself. It's interesting how the, how the disciples described themselves, particularly after when they, when they wrote their letters or after Jesus Christ was risen from the dead. They didn't, there was no pride in them. Remember? 
Matthew described him as a publican. Paul, in almost every case, called himself a prisoner of Jesus Christ. It's amazing how... Did you see that the more effective they were, the more humble they were? Let me say it another way. The more humble they were, the more effective they are. You show me today people that are effective in ministry, I will show you someone that is humble. You cannot be effective in Jesus Christ's ministry without being humble. You cannot do it. There's no room for pride and... What was the other word I used today? There's no room... There's pridefulness and... Okay, let me try this again. There was two things that I said were incompatible. Now you're just about there. Pridefulness and fruitfulness are incompatible. You show me something that's prideful, I'll show you where there's no fruit. If I see fruit and I see energy and I see ministry and I see Christ working, I will show you humility and lowliness. That has to be the key ingredient in that person's life. You know, the person that is able to put on the whole armor of God, the person that is able to take trials and leave them trials and not enter into temptation, humility is at the basis of it. Their lives are just really, literally consumed with humility. And we're going to be talking about, hopefully here in just a few moments, there's three things that allow us to really get on board with humility. But let's keep moving for right now. So here we have this Pharisee and this publican, and in that person's mind they would think, in fact, Pharisee goes on to prove it. Verse 11. Chapter 18. Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. <laughs> Did you see that? He didn't pray to God. Did you note that? He prayed with himself. <laughs> Have you ever done that? <laughs> this guy did. He stood and prayed thus with himself. God, he just mentions God, just... He's, but he's praying to himself. I thank you that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And then it says in verse 13, the publican is standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Humility is at the basis of Christian walking, of living worthy. Remember what Jesus said of John the Baptist? Let's, let's, let's see if we can find that for a moment. Let's go to uh, Matthew. Let's go back to Matthew for a moment. Matthew chapter 11. Let's try that. Matthew 11. And verse 11. Now, before we do that, actually, um, verse 7, Matthew chapter 11, verse 7. As they departed, now actually what had happened is John had sent two disciples and asked, is this really, are you really the Christ or we should be looking for another one? He was in prison. And it's amazing. I, I, there's, a, there's a bit of encouragement in the fact that even John the Baptist can become discouraged. If, you know, don't raise your hand by any means, but did you have any point, any measure of discouragement this week? If you did, it's not a good time, is it? 
It's just not. It's just not a good time. And yet, I can think of Paul. I can th- I could I could name all of the, look at Elijah. We studied him some time back. To be discouraged is very common. It's very, very common. And John the Baptist, think of this. He's in prison. He has just been that lead, that forerunner of Jesus Christ. He came and he saw Jesus approaching him. He said, behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. He knew who he was. He knew it. He baptized him then. And he watched God the Father speak. And he said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And here he is, just a little bit later, in prison. And he sends two disciples to see if he's really the one. Right? And Jesus told him, tell them about the works, the miracles that you've seen. Tell them about what I'm doing. He'll get it. But then he talks about John the Baptist, verse 7. Verse 7. As they departed, Jesus began to say in the multitudes concerning John, What went you out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken with the wind? What went you out for to see? A man clothed in soft raiment? Behold, they that wear soft clothing are in king's houses. But what went you out for to see? A prophet? Yes, I say unto you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. Look at verse 11. Verily or truly I say unto you, among them that are born of women. Stop for a moment. That's quite a few. There hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist, notwithstanding he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Did you see what he said about John the Baptist? And what did John the Baptist say about his relationship with Jesus Christ? This is really... If, if there could be... I'm not saying I'm worthy. I would never, ever even say that. But to have on a tombstone, it actually meant something. It's on anyone's... I'll just say it that way. But it deserved to be on, on John's. Is this. He said of Jesus... He must increase, and I must decrease. That, my friends, is probably the clearest distinction of Scripture of what humility looks like. Isn't that perfect? It's beautiful. And that's the kind of attitude today that the church needs. If we have that attitude of the church, you know the church would look so different, the world couldn't, they couldn't help but just drop their jaw and say, that is so weird. It's so different. You're so united. You're so loving. You're so kind to one another. You're gentle and you're meek and you're... I don't like the word, but you're humble. And everyone likes humbleness in someone else. We mark that word. That's a contagious thing. Even if you're in a group of setting and you have a lot of people there that are non-Christian, do you know where they want to be around? The humble ones. Because they listen. <laughs> they listen. You have, if, you have, if you have a group of prideful people in the same group, do you know the contention that's there? They all want to talk at the same time. They all have bigger problems. They all have done more. They're smarter. They're, everyone's the same, right? And it's there's contention. You take someone that's even prideful and contention with, in, in, in company with a humility, that's where they want to go. They're attracted to that. That humble person has more advantages than we could possibly imagine in the sense of everything that goes on around them. Jesus Christ was that humble person. Three things I want to close with on the, for today anyway. How do we become humble? The first thing would be self-awareness. Self-awareness. Analyzing yourself honestly. Put your now, 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 careful now. You know what it's easy to do. Now, this is how pride works. You pick your select group of people that you compare yourself to, and then you make sure that group you are higher than. I didn't, no, that's not what I said. I said self-awareness in the sense of where you are 
in respect to God's word. Oh, oh, that's so different. Yes, it is. Because when you see yourself as God paints you, that is trapped, dead in trespasses and sins, it says in Ephesians chapter 2, that self-awareness naturally brings you to a point of humility. Not amongst ourselves. When you honestly look, you know what's going to happen? The first thing is we're, we're going to be, we're having communion today. One of the things that's essential for us to be in fellowship, to be in communion with our Lord Jesus Christ is what? Making sure that we're clean, cleaning our hearts. That's called confession of sin. And when we have a self-awareness and we understand honestly where we are, you know what happens? We're led right to that level, right to that sin that we need to confess. That thing that's besetting us, it says in, in uh, Hebrews chapter 12. And it's amazing how humility starts to come in. It, that If pride was part of that day, if pride was part of that moment, if you are really self-aware as the scripture def- defines you and your need of God, your need of a Savior, oh, 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 right? And humility starts to seep in. Now, again, it's, it's not the matter of... Um, if, if you bring attention to yourself, that's, that's, that's not humility. Keep that in mind. But it's becoming more Christ-like. In other words, your goal is to be more like Jesus Christ. And if there's sin in your life, that needs to be confessed. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. And the really cool part is, is God promised he's faithful that if you confess your sin, he will forgive it. I, I praise God for that. That was written to Christians. I... What if, he didn't, what if he got saved and, and you couldn't, and you had one shot? You, if you sin, you're done. Oh, my goodness, right? Why bother? But he's not like that. But not only self-awareness, but Christ-awareness. Remember what we read in 1 John chapter 2, verse 6? It said that literally if we really say we are of Christ, we will follow him. We will look like him. We will be like him. So how do we compare to Jesus Christ? Remember what, P- what Peter said? He said, uh, you need to leave. We're not worthy to be here, right? Christ is that much superior. When, we're our, when our eyes are on Jesus Christ 24-7, you say, that's not possible. I'll tell you what. When you continue to focus on having him in your mind, when you continually want to be in his presence, when you continually want to be just like him, you know what? You will become passionate about him. This is where pride usually rears its head, is what, and this is a question each one of us need to ask ourselves. What are we passionate about? Most of the world is passionate about things that make ourselves greater in the eyes of others. To be humble, we must be passionate about focusing on Jesus. There's self-awareness, there's Christ-awareness. But there's also a God-awareness. Let's go to Isaiah. I don't know if I can find it. You guys might have to help me. It doesn't pop in my mind. But remember where Isaiah said, Woe is me? He was actually in the presence of God. Do you remember where that's at? What did you say, Bill? Because I want to find this. Because this is this literally... Yeah, there it is. It is. It's chapter 6. Let's, let's turn to chapter 6, verse 1. 
chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw, this is Isaiah speaking, I saw, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled with the temple. Whoa, stop. Okay, now this is in a dream, obviously, because no man can look on God. But if you can get this picture, here's Isaiah in the year that King Uzziah died, and he sees in a vision God. <laughs> I have a feeling we're going to see some humility. Watch it develop. Above it stood the seraphims, verse 2. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with two or twain he covered his feet, and with two or twain he did fly. And one cried on another. He said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the, vo- and the house was filled with smoke. And then said I, Woe is me. For I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Those three things will move us in a pathway of humility. The world is trying to take us away from it, to be concerned with self, to be concerned with anything that will exalt us to another level. They pass out trophies, they pass out awards, they pass out ribbons, they pass out things that really want us to become more and more and more of whatever it is that we think that we might be. But we have a self-awareness that we would open ourselves to, Lord God, show me. Let the Holy Spirit work in my life to see where I have sinned. And then looking all the time through the Scripture's position of who Christ was and then as Isaiah literally saw who God was and the more you study God the more you study the scriptures the more you look at Jesus Christ the further pride will come will will move away from you and humility will be part of the beginning of living and and walking worthy because if humility is not in your life let's let's cap it with this pridefulness and are incompatible. Humility really probably depicted our Lord Jesus Christ more than any other characteristic. When you analyze it, it was God who became man that went to a cross. I can think of nothing outside of humility that would be my first point of who he really was. And the reason The result of him doing that is the fact that we're sitting here today praising a God that has saved us. There's a a lady I came in contact with this week. Um, She doesn't know Jesus. And I'm not, I don't even know, her name is Emily. Yeah, it is. Her name is Emily. And she has moved around a lot of different places. And she made a comment to me, which I didn't feel... She kept moving. You know, sometimes you just keep talking. Well, some other people keep talking. <laughs> At any rate. But she said, I've moved around a lot. I've seen a lot of stuff, and I keep looking for something. But I haven't found it. I know what she's looking for. And I'm going to pray. We're going to pray that she finds it. Okay? I'm going to ask that you put her on your prayer list this week. I'm just going to leave it at that. Her name is Emily. And here's a woman that is literally looking for something that doesn't know what it is. And if God allows that opportunity, I'm going to hopefully share with her.
I know what you've been looking for. May we help, may we ask that you would prepare, prepare her heart. Just came to my mind right now. Isn't that, isn't that cool to know that that same Jesus that died for us died for everyone else? Questions or comments today? This is not where the world starts. This is not the first ingredient on being successful. So if it's on the first list, I'm going to, this is, it's, it's a little bit convicting, but I'm going to say it again. So we've talked about the pressure of the rest of the cults and the standards and the clubs and all of those things that take place. How come we're not as fixed on being humble as our Savior wants us to be? That's a good question, isn't it? Yes? The message there starts out, it says, Therefore, I, prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ, beseech you that you walk worthy. That means it's comparing to what he just told us. What is it worth to you? What I've just told you, these blessings that you've just gotten, what is it worth? Yeah. And, and, like I said, we spoke of it earlier. In the Old Testament was, if you do this, then I will bless you. Paul has just told us, as you've pointed out, the first two chapters of, of Ephesians is everything that you have in Christ. That's, that's why I'm begging you to walk with. Because he deserves it from you. Because he gave you everything that you could possibly know or imagine. It's beyond what I can even describe for you. I couldn't take the first three chapters. I could preach for the end of my life. And you would not even get a, a, not even a smidge. I don't even know what that word means. You wouldn't get a sliver of what you have in Christ. Isn't that something? All because of what he did. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the day. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your care. Thank you for watching over us, taking care of us, showing us, guiding us, encouraging us, lifting us up. And Father, even today, the encouragement to know that the main ingredient, the starting point for us as followers of Jesus Christ, of sons and daughters of yourself, is to be fully immersed in humility, which when we have a self-awareness of perfection, if you will, of what you demand, what you must have, and what we have to give, it's very humbling. When we look at Jesus Christ and literally the humility that was in his life and we look at the perfection that he lived out, it's very humbling. When we consider how he responded to those questions and those considerations, when there was pride that came into the situation and he just completely disarmed them, Or as Isaiah saw you, Father, in a vision. And to consider the holiness, the throne that he saw you upon. He could only respond by saying, woe is me. Or Job, when you appeared to him and you asked him questions, of which he had not the slightest idea of your creative magnificence. It said that he repented. He humbled himself. Father, that's the picture that I would pray pray for each and every one of us. Pride is so sinister. It's so it's so selfish. It's so easy to become enamored with. It's so easy to protect and to take it to ourselves because we deserve it. Father, may it be broken down. May it be misaligned. May it not line up with who we are in Christ. May humility be ours. Not because we, again, we don't even deserve that. But, Father, you have allowed it to be part of us. 
when our desire is to be Christ-like. Take us and use us. Thank you for the time that we've had together. In Christ's name.